0: This is the Prairie Prophets Podcast with host Brandon Butler. Today we're at the Missouri Department of Conservation office in Kirksville for a women in agriculture event, and I'm meeting with Ashley Neal, a private land conservationist for Adair and Sullivan Counties. Ashley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now I hear this is the first time you've ever done a podcast before. Yes, it is. How are the nerves?
1: I got a little bit of nerves. <laughs> okay,
0: we're going to try to make this really easy on you and just talk about things we both care about. Sounds good to me. All right, we're going to begin with prescribed fire. I understand that you've recently been working on some prescribed fire and that for people who want to get assistance, they need to have a plan that's going to come through your office in this area.
1: Yeah, so for the federal cost share, the state cost share, they're going have to have a burn plan and for their CRP contracts. Two years ago, Missouri passed a burn law to where they have to have that burn plan. It kind of helps protect them because if you light the fire, then you can be liable for any damages that it might cause. So it's just good to have a plan in play. And to have me write one for them, they need to be in Adair Sullivan County. And then they have to go to one of my workshops and take an online course.
0: You can burn on your own land yes. without one of these plans. Yes. But if you want to be covered from liability.
1: It, it helps you. Yes. It helps you. In a civil suit, then, I mean, you can still be civilly sued, but for any uh, attentional fires, it will help you for that.
0: Okay. Let's take a step back and just talk about, you know, what kind of habitat are people burning?
1: Anything from prairies to woodlands, even some fescue pastures, they'll burn some of those.
0: And why do you recommend somebody would do a prescribed fire?
1: I think prescribed fire is probably the most beneficial tool we have to managing our habitat. If you want your native warm season grasses, your forbs to flourish, I think you need to burn and put it on a burn rotation. I wouldn't necessarily burn it every single year, but every three to five years, and that just helps produce more seeds. We already have some native seeds in our soil, so burning just helps open up that soil and allows them to grow.
0: Let's talk about CRP. Conservation Reserve Program. Can you tell people a little bit about what that is?
1: So that's a federal program that is in play for some farm ground that's, I can't even remember the years now, but it has to have a cropping history. And it just helps with the erosion control. Instead of you farming the side hills and that kind of thing, you can put it into some native warm season grasses. There's even a cool season grass mix that you can use. And that just helps the wildlife.
0: Now, you don't just plant it and forget it, though. No. There's work that goes in. No, everything.
1: you have to, have to have a mid-management uh, contract with that. So you need to spray it or burn it or just get, disturb it in some way, which I would recommend burning for that.
0: So you plant the CRP, you have to manage it, meaning that you know some people might believe that you plant it and you just let it go natural and that's the best thing for it. That's not the best thing
1: for No, you need to disturb it at some point. You're supposed to do it at least once, but you can get special permission to split your fields up and do it multiple years.
0: So what we're doing through the Horizon 2 grant is we are restoring prairie to what we call marginal lands or riparian areas, lands where row crops have been planted but probably don't belong. You know, we're not talking about prime acres. We're not talking about the flat cornfield, soybean fields that just look like corn and soybeans should be there. We're talking about when you're trying to jam as much corn as you can on your land and putting it where it probably just doesn't belong. And we want to restore prairie to those lands. Lots of reasons why this can be financially viable. One, you're eliminating the input costs of having to plant every year the input costs of having to fertilize, the input costs of having to harvest. And with our new approach to making a market around this biomass for our anaerobic digesters to make renewable natural gas, there's money to be made, as well as these programs. So with CRP, what we would like to see is those lands available for sustainable harvest on a rotational basis, if those grasses and plants are going to be used as a feedstock for renewable energy. Mm -hmm. So the government is putting mandates, all kinds of industries, all kinds of individuals to lower our carbon footprint. Uh, We're looking at renewable energy opportunities. We are overlooking a huge feedstock of renewable energy producing prairie, cover crops, other grasses that we can add to our digesters. So my point in all of that is if we were to plant the prairie, restore it and bring it back and harvest it sustainably on a rotational basis, you're saying that disturbance is actually good for the prairie. Yes. So our process would actually be good because people ask that, like how can you plant the prairie and then harvest the prairie? Well, it's the same thing we do with prescribed fire. It's the same thing that we do with other means of managing our grasslands. If we only take portions of the entire stand, so we're still leaving cover throughout the entire year. But if if we are basically regenerating that prairie through the harvest, then we're actually benefiting that land and all the critters that call it home.
1: For sure, yeah. And it's good to not do everything, like I said, in one year, mixing it up.
0: Now, you have some parameters as to when the ground nesting is taking place in CRP.
1: Yes, you can't do anything before July 15th.
0: And those are rules that we would follow as well. We would make sure to abide by those rules. We would not want to mess with any of the ground nesting birds like our wild turkey, which is so important to us if you go back and watch Episode 6 of Prairie Prophets TV, you'll learn a lot more about habitat, prescribed fire, and uh, turkey Mm hunting. So, are you a turkey hunter yourself? Oh, yeah. You are?
1: Yeah, I like to hunt pretty well anything.
0: (laughs) I like to hunt pretty well anything, too. (laughs) Talk about the hunting up here in Adair County and and Sullivan County.
1: It seems to be pretty good. I mean, there's a lot of timber around here. And I've noticed in this last year, actually, the turkey population seems to be doing better. I think the drought really helped us this year with that. But doing our turkey surveys during the summertime, you could see a lot of roods out there, a bunch of poults.
0: I have noticed large groups of poults Mm -hmm. running around right now, too. In fact, I have a small farm. I rarely get any trail camera pictures of turkeys. I pulled cards not too long ago looking for bucks. I ended up getting more excited about my turkey flock because in the first picture, there was like eight. And that's the most turkeys I've ever had in a, in a photo by far. The next picture was like 13 and then there was 16 and then there was 20 turkeys on my bean field in one picture. And that's good. that really, really made me happy. Can you talk about an ideal property as far as diversity? You know, you don't want to have 40 acres of corn. You don't no. want to have 40 acres of just grass or 40 acres of just woods. Like, if you're trying to build a habitat for wildlife, can you talk about the importance of diversity on the landscape?
1: So I would want to have some thin timber, maybe some thicker timber in there if you're going to do a timber harvest later on. Still open around some of those crop trees. but And then I'd like to have an old field, a prairie planting, have some shrubs out there. I think shrubs are probably the most overlooked habitat component.
0: What are a few species of shrubs you like?
1: My favorite one would probably be the wild plum. There's some dogwoods and that kind of thing out there, but they can overtake the field too. And sumac is probably one of the most prolific one around here, but that can take over and it loves fire. So every time I recommend a shrub, I would say wild plum.
0: And why? Why wild plum?
1: Quail seem to love it for their uh, headquarters for the wintertime. And they grow in thickets in the middle of the field pretty well.
0: I'm learning all kinds of things about (laughs) quail hunting today. Locations, look for wild plum in the field.
1: And some edge feathering along some of those pollinator plantings. And and maybe on the ridge tops have some food plots or your crop like the corn and soybeans. But I like to have just a mixture of everything.
0: So what's your background? How did you end up here at the Department of Conservation?
1: So I grew up hunting and fishing. I started hunting when I was six years old, went out with dad before then. We had cow and calf operation as well as row crops. And where, I knew- where at? Atlanta, Missouri. Okay. And I moved to Macon whenever I got married, but I have goats down there now with some brush management practices we've been doing. But I always knew I wanted to work outside doing something. I wasn't real sure what I wanted to do. And then I got a- offer to become an hourly up here just doing some invasive species spraying on some of the conservation areas. So that kind of got my foot in the door here and then I did some CWD technician work and did that for two or three years and then this job opened up and I applied for it and I got it and I I love it.
0: And you work, uh, you report to Brent? Yes. So Brent was in episode six as well Mm -hmm. when we talked about that. So if you want to If you want to see Ashley's boss, you can go back and check (laughs) out that episode of Prairie Profits TV and and learn a little bit more about private lands conservation work that the department does. You talked about spraying invasives. That's another aspect of prairie management that's, you know, very time-consuming, labor-intensive. You know, again, I'm learning. People think you can plant these grasses and it's like a one-and-done thing, but that's never really the case.
1: No, you're probably gonna have some sorrisia pop up in olive.
0: <laughs> yeah, because you guys planted that sorrisia <laughs> back in the fifties. So uh,
1: maybe, maybe Modot did.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys, there's a there's a debate
1: a on bit. who planted.
0: Okay, okay, but I have it on my property. So I've, like I said, I've got a small farm. It's forty acres. Most of it's in row crop. I'm transitioning about half of it to prairie. I've got a a, a, a kind of wash that runs through the middle. It's got a bunch of. Small trees in it, some really nice native plants. I've got great milkweed, but the ceresia's is really bad. Mm-hmm. And we, we burned it real good last year. I mean, just torched that whole, that whole wash down to charred earth. Came back big and beautiful. The prairie plants, the natives, they responded well, but so did the ceresia.
1: Yeah, it loves a burn.
0: Yeah. So what do I need to do? Like, what would you recommend as a private landowner I do to attack that Ceresia?
1: So if you just have a few spots of it, I would do some spot spraying with some pasture guard or remedy. It's just a broadleaf killer.
0: So where do you get that?
1: You can get it online, MFA, Amazon. I mean, it's pretty well all over.
0: If I walked into MFA and said, I need blank, what would I be asking for?
1: Pasture guard they pasture have that, guard. or remedy. They should have both on hand.
0: And that'll kill Ceresia.
1: Yeah, you'll still have to go back every year, do it additional times a year because that seed stays in the soil for 25 years. So it's just very prolific.
0: So how do you, how do you attack it? You just spray it on the top? Do you have to spray it around the base where it meets the I soil? I kind
1: hit it all over, but be careful about everything else around you that you're spraying. That's why I'm saying spot spray. Just make sure you're getting just that plant, but I know people are worried about killing all their forbs and stuff with it, but if they don't do anything for it, then that's just going to overtake their field anyway.
0: And when can you do that? When? During
1: the summer months are usually the best, June, July, beginning of August. You want to hit it before it seeds out.
0: So when all the ticks are really bad oh, yeah. and it's really, and it's hot, really to be hot out yeah. there, that's yep. when you want to be out there. Doing I
1: spent it. summers doing that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh. How much would you charge to come down and do some more of it?
1: Uh, those, my days of doing that are probably over <laughs> unless it's my own farm. Because <laughs> if I
0: go to the department and I get this plan worked out and they're like, you need to do this, this, and this, uh, there's no like, you know what? You guys come down here and spray to your heart's desire. No, we'll just
1: give you some money to do <laughs> <You> it. <laughs> just,
0: oh, you give me some money? Yeah, we to, have some
1: cost share available. To
0: spray Ceresia. Yep. There you go. And then I can hire a high school kid? Yeah. Oh, I like how this plan is coming together.
1: You just got to find them. <laughs> <laughs> just
0: There's quite a few, quite a few hardworking guys and gals down there in Howard County. So we could probably find one. Mm -hmm. So you you said you like to hunt everything and there's good habitat up here. When you're looking for a good place to hunt, and I'm speaking about deer hunting right now, Mm -hmm. do you feel most people overlook grasslands and open lands for the timber? And do you feel that that's a a good decision?
1: I think you can find big bucks and some CRP. And some of those uh, native prairie plantings, definitely overlooked. Some people think look at that field and say, oh, nothing will be out there. But if you actually go walk out there, you'll see beds and stuff everywhere, especially if there's some shrubs. They seem to love those too, just like the quail do. And if you've got some edge feathering along those trails, they'll probably be bedded behind those.
0: What What is that? You've mentioned that a couple of times, edge feathering.
1: So usually you take like a 30 by 50 foot section, 30 feet in the timber, 50 foot long. And you drop pretty well every tree along that edge there in that zone. And you do three of those, and that typically equals about a tenth of an acre. So you just put tort on or some other sort of chemical on the stomp there and drop all the trees. I don't recommend hinge cutting. but
0: Hinge cutting? Yeah. What is that?
1: When you leave part of the tree still attached. I think that just makes you have to go back and do more work later on.
0: Tell us about this event, this Women in Agriculture, that's going on here today.
1: So a bunch of different uh, women producers and cooperators are gathered today to kind of learn about. They had a discussion over what's killing my trees, some of the cost share programs we have here, some estate planning. I think they're going to do a soil health deal this afternoon. They just came to kind of learn a little more of what they can do to their property, because we are getting more women landowners out there, so it's good to know what what they can do.
0: Yeah. When we talk about pollinators and we talk about the grasslands, we definitely find that there's a lot of interest from the women in agriculture. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes uh, the wives of the farmer that we're talking to can be very influential in in the grasslands aspect of it. Talk about your own journey as a woman into conservation. You know, it's still a a fairly male dominated Mm -hmm. world and, how did you decide to choose this career path and and what's it like?
1: I think uh my dad tried to make me a tomboy, so that probably had a lot to do with it, but it's it's interesting. There's not a whole lot of women, but there seems to be more now and I like that. <laughs> if
0: you were if you were going into a high school mm-hmm. and and speaking to a gymnasium full of boys and girls, you know, how would you sell this job or or sell working for conservation in general? to an audience that has a lot of young ladies in it?
1: I would say if you love to be outdoors and to work with people and you genuinely want to get more habitat on the ground, that this is a job for you.
0: Through this event, this Women in Agriculture event, you know, what are you learning? What are you learning from the women here that are landowners and, and farmers?
1: I'm learning how I can maybe help them a little bit better because a lot of them seem to not understand a whole lot of the programs and that kind of thing because usually the husbands take care of it. So maybe I can learn how to talk to them a little easier. And I I did learn a lot about the estate planning and uh, vet airmen's talk about what's killing our trees. So I find all those topics pretty interesting.
0: Well, what's killing the trees?
1: A lot of diseases, beetles, people not planting them right, that kind of thing.
0: What's the white oak disease that's been going on? I think there's uh, the... Plight?
1: yeah, there's a lot. There's an oak wilt that's killing some of them, too. And some of them can get the galls from the wasps them as well. But Yvette would definitely know more than I do about that. I always send her those tree questions.
0: <laughs> what are some of the things that you enjoy most about going out onto these private lands and, and working with the owners to create a plan for conservation on their property?
1: I like to see all the different diversity that these two counties seem to have there's a lot of timber when you go west of here. East of here, there's quite a bit of crop fields and some more CRP. And uh, Sullivan has a lot of CRP and some native warm season grasses too. And I know the big push now is to get cow producers to do the native warm season grass planting. So it's been interesting working with some of the grazing people out there and see how we can maybe incorporate that into what they're doing on their farms.
0: How does that typically go when you show up and say, hey, you know what you need to do? You need to plant all these warm season grasses. It
1: doesn't normally go over very well because (laughs) everybody thinks they're bad.
0: (laughs) They're bad? Yeah. Why would they think warm season grasses are bad? I think it's just an
1: old tale about them not doing very well for the cattle, but definitely not true. I know some people down South Missouri that are getting a lot of pounds on their cattle every day about it. Oh, so the, warm season grasses. the idea
0: is that the, the cold season grasses will pack more weight on the cattle than yeah. warm season grasses and, will.
1: And they just do a little better, but it's not true, especially with all the droughts that we've been having.
0: I was on a field trip out in North Dakota, uh, America's Grasslands Conference, a few years back. And we went out to a ranch uh, where they do rotational grazing mm-hmm. on natives. And I think they, they move the cattle twice a day into new quarter acre pens. They essentially... Have uh, one side of the electric fence that just swings, and they mm-hmm. they move it to a new area. And that rancher said, you know, my biggest problem now is how much money I'm spending on gasoline for my boat at the lake, because all I got to do is move my cattle twice a day, and the rest kind of takes care of itself. Yep. So I think that's a good problem to have. You know, if you just move your cattle, let them eat the natives, and then you got to worry about how you can fund your your boat life addiction. Yeah, and I,
1: I think it's still important to have some cool season and your rotational grazing too. I mean, for the months where your warm seasons are producing, but definitely have the mix because you can't have warm season and cool season together in the same field because the cool season just going to out-compete it. But if you can have a paddock over there and a warm season and paddock on the other side of cool season and just kind of alternate those, I think that's the best way to go about it. Don't want to hit those warm seasons too hard or they're not going to make it.
0: Do you have any favorite prairie plants? Any favorite prairie flowers?
1: I really like rattlesnake Master. I don't know why. I just, that's one of my favorites. And coneflowers are always pretty.
0: Purple coneflower is mine. Yeah, I'm learning. Uh, There's, what, over 400 different plants. There are a lot, and I'm still learning them, too. Yeah, I think I might. I've got at least 40 of them. Yeah. I'm up to 10%. I'm 10 percenter now (laughs) on my prairie plant identification.
1: Yeah, some of those mix people are planning are getting really intent on them.
0: Well, if you could snap your fingers and make one big conservation change, like one big wide swath of change all at once, what's something that you just wish in general was different in the conservation world?
1: I wish we didn't have as much overgrown fescue pastures around here. Seems to be the majority of the land use. And if we could switch that over to some native grass and forbs, I think livestock wildlife and everybody would benefit more
0: Ashley how would people get a hold of you up here in Adair and Sullivan County
1: so they can swing by the USDA office on a Franklin Street in Kirksville they can give me a call or they can go on our website to the MDC public webpage go to contact us find your county and my name number will be there
0: thank you very much Yeah, thank you Thanks for listening to the Prairie Prophets Podcast with host Brandon Butler.